Hey everyone, this is your friend Bully, and you're listening to Bully Esquire. In this podcast, we chat with the movers and shakers from the worlds of finance, tech, crypto, politics, law, and media, and everything in between. Thanks for joining. Let's dive in. This podcast is powered by Blockworks, the fastest growing crypto media company. Blockworks has 20 crypto and finance podcasts, and I'm excited to be part of the network. Visit blockworks.co for access to the highest quality information in the space. I promise you won't be disappointed. Today's episode is brought to you by Node40, Crypto.com, and Gemini. You'll hear more about them later in the episode. Really excited today. I have Lee Quinn, um, a crypto journalist and very prominent member of the crypto community. Lee, how are you doing? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me today. Yeah, no, thanks for joining. Um, I appreciate your time. I know you're busy. I, uh, I Before we kind of get into the topics I thought we'd discuss, I've, I'm always curious to hear about how you, know, you got into crypto and how you ended up in this crazy space. Yeah, so I've been working in news media in some form since high school. I interned at the Orange County Register in high school, studied journalism in college, got my first adult job at a paper newspaper in San Francisco. Um, so I've been a journalist for a long time. I was assigned my first story about Bitcoin, which briefly mentioned that it was used on darknet markets in 2015. In 2017, I joined a Newsweek media group right before the bull run, and nobody on staff wanted to tackle cryptocurrency. It was seen as this really demanding beat with an extremely niche audience, and it would just be really hard, so no one wanted to do it. Um, but because it was so hard, the editors were willing to give me more freedom than literally any other topic on staff. So I took it, and the rest is history. Sure. Yeah, I guess it's nice when your editors probably don't know the first thing about it. You can be like, oh, yeah, I totally spent all this time understanding private keys, but you like, already understand them. Um, I have to say, it's hard, but yeah, it was it was nice to be able to tell my editor, like, no, this is a bad idea. This mm -hmm. is a good idea. And like, they had to trust me with it because they didn't know either. Sure, sure. So what what types of stories were you sort of originally covering in kind of the 2017 era? Oh my gosh, it was so bad. I am so ashamed, Lily. Uh, so like one of my first articles was, what is Ethereum? I was doing <laughs> an hour and at the end of the hour, I genuinely didn't know what I was going to say. <laughs> um, then I, I had a lot of stories about different altcoins. And I mean, I think I'd made a lot of the mistakes that literally anybody who knows nothing about computer science makes, which is somebody who uh, spoke last week at an Ivy League university and has Microsoft's icon on their website, uh, tells you that their company is doing things just like any other tech company, frankly, mm -hmm. tells you they are doing things. And it doesn't seem entirely suspicious. Um, but as I got to understand how computers work a little bit better, it occurred to me that a lot of things they were claiming to do just aren't possible in this world. Like, like, just they're not things that can happen. And so, so then I had to start doing more stories related to, um, and first off, uh, the legal context that these companies are working in. And second off, like who are the real users and what are they actually using this technology for if it's probably not being used for the things that the people who are paid to sell it are telling me it's for. Right. Yeah, no, and that was very sort of, I think, typical in the 2017 era. And I remember getting kind of caught up in that too, because I was, I, I got into it in like late 2016, Ethereum brought me in. And so I was sort of susceptible to those same narratives. And it's like, oh, this ICO is going to fix 
um, it's going to take on WeWork. And you're like, oh, well, that sounds like a really cool thing. And then come to find out they just raised $50 million and then they don't do anything with it. So yeah, I think there was a lot of that, particularly back then. Yeah, and I was really lucky that uh, when I joined Coindesk, the editors gave me some leeway to basically atone for my bull run sins. And I actually <laughs> went back and followed up with many of the companies I'd originally covered and wrote follow-up articles now with more information um, about what they had done with their ICO money and what actually happened. That would be really interesting. And I don't, I actually don't know much about that. Do you have any sort of um, ones in particular that stick out in your head about you know, cases where they raised a bunch of money and then either found success or just crashed and burned? I, I really want to avoid going okay. back to the memory lane, but I can say that sure. uh, there's not a single ICO company that couldn't have done what they did with VC funding if they had gotten VC funding. Mm-hmm. Um, I will say that there is one company that sticks out in my mind, and I don't want to name it because I don't want to endorse it because God knows maybe someday they'll do something very stupid. Sure. But um, that seems to be working like a regular tech company. And the big benefit was is that there are a bunch of middle-class people in Brazil who are serving a rural market in particular, uh, who VCs never would have looked at or given the time of day. Mm-hmm. So the vast majority of ICOs were uh, not that, but every once in a while I would find a project or there was also another company in Vietnam, for example, that it's not my cup of tea, but lots of people use their trading platform or service rather. Um, and their trading technology seems to generally work. And so every, like really, I could count them probably on one hand. There were a few ICOs that were just basically very lucky capital raises. And for those, I'm happy. The rest Mm -hmm. generally closed down within three years or just don't ever use the funds for what they say they're going to use it for. Yeah, no, that's a good point. And it's probably a similar hit rate to VC companies. It's just, I guess ICOs were just a really kind of a novel way to raise cash from retail investors, oftentimes disregarding applicable securities rules to do so. So um, yeah, yeah, that's a good point. I mean, if you look at a VC's hit rate, it's probably I don't know the numbers, but I'd guess it's like one out of every 10 or 20 companies they invest in actually does, you know, actually turns a profit for them. Maybe I'm wrong on that, but I'd, I'd guess that's right. Yeah. I mean, VCs are legal gambling. Right. The big difference is they wear suits and have lawyers. It's really not that different than what a lot of people are doing with ICOs. Sure. Yeah, no, it is interesting. And I, I mean, you hear a lot about this and sort of the, the crypto world, the critique of the accredited investor rules. So, you know, if you make, if you have over a million bucks or you make over 200,000 a year, you can invest in these early stage technology companies like VCs do. Otherwise, it's actually prohibited under US securities rules. So I think the critique there is, well, you know, why, why wouldn't somebody who can go to the casino or go buy scratch off lottery tickets, not be able to throw a thousand dollars into Uber when it's an, it's an early stage company. So I'm going to say something that will make Bitcoiners really cranky and I'm sorry. (laughs) I I really like, I would love (laughs) it if there was a bad guy to hate here, but to be honest, from all the people that I interviewed, when I did those follow-up articles, going back to these companies and who invested in them and who did these things, I very rarely, I mean, the extreme exception found someone who felt they had been tricked. Mm-hmm. Most people told me I knew I was making a risk, a risky bet and it failed. It was a gamble that I lost. Yeah. And like, that's not great. It's, it's not great to lie to people. Um, 
it's not great to give people really risky opportunities and don't even try to follow through. But a lot of the people who participated in ICOs were aware that they were gambling. And as long as they didn't have some kind of gambling addiction, their lives weren't necessarily ruined by it. Mm-hmm. I suppose the, the counterpoint to that too, then would like the SEC has all of these rules. If, if you're going to take money from investors, you have to offer all sorts of disclosures, right? Like show your financials, be clear about who's on the team and what you're trying to do. And, you know, I think a lot of these ICOs, I mean, saying it generously didn't have a lot of those disclosure safeguards. So, um, you know, and I think even in, in worse cases, there was outright fraud. Um, Oh yeah. Yeah. And yeah, you remember those stories from like 18 where they were arresting ICO founders at like LaGuardia or JFK trying to flee the country. It was like, it was such a crazy time when all of that happened and hundreds of billions of dollars were being raised via these, these outlets. But um, yeah, I, <laughs> it's funny. We, we went down the ICO rabbit hole. I didn't expect to, but it is an interesting time in sort of crypto lore. Yeah. And I will say that there's also a lot of fraud that people claim they're doing with Bitcoin, right? Mm -hmm. Like people will say, I offer a custody service or I offer a trading service and they're just doing a fraud. And it has no difference whether they're doing fraud, claiming it's an Ethereum based platform or claiming that it's a Bitcoin service. Fraud is generally not nice and there's tons of it in this space. Yeah. Yeah, that's that's really true. And a lot of times you'll hear about people saying, "Oh, I'll uh, I'll take your money and invest it for you, and you'll get these huge returns." And then, of course, they inevitably just run off with all the money. <laughs> and um, yeah, so it, you're right; it's it happens both sort of on the Bitcoin and Ethereum side. Um, so I, I, you know, I was looking at your your bio and stuff. You have quite a list of bylines here. Um, you know, not only Coindesk, like you mentioned, you have TechCrunch, Business Insider, Teen Vogue, Newsweek, um, Al Jazeera, Jerusalem Post, et cetera. So I, I thought maybe you could just spend a little time telling people what it's like to, to be sort of, a, I guess, a freelance journalist in the space. I'm not sure if that's the right term or um, if, is that right? Would, it, would you describe yourself as a freelance journalist? Yeah, I'm a freelance writer right now and okay. I do journalism. I also do other kinds of writing as well. Um, it's been really interesting this time around because the last time I was a full-time freelancer, I was living in Israel at the time covering Middle Eastern politics. So that's mm-hmm. when I you know, worked for publications like the Jerusalem Post and Al Jazeera. And that time around, I was also a lot younger. Uh, so I was just really uh, frantic and just trying to take any assignment I could and any rate that I could and do as much as I could, as fast as I could. And this time around, I've been very, very lucky that it's been a bull run. So in addition to other kinds of reporting, you know, on different topics, whether that be fashion or politics or what we call, you know, mainstream stuff, Mm -hmm. uh, some tech publications are interested now in Bitcoin coverage or in crypto market coverage that weren't generally during the bear market. So it's a huge combination of just like trying to read widely about the things that you care about and talk to people who aren't usually being featured in the media because it's just so heavily saturated with the same voices over and over. So when mm-hmm. I'm trying to look for a story, I'm like trying to talk to people who haven't gotten so much attention and figure out like, what do they know that the public doesn't already know yet? And then try and figure out which outlet is willing to buy that information, right? If I, I can have an amazing story, but if I can't sell it, it's not good business. So I try and figure out what do I have that's unique that no one else is gonna compete with me on? And then where can I sell it? 
Oh, interesting. That that's sort of different than what I would have expected. I would have expected that a publication approach you and says, "Hey, Lee, we want you to write a story on Michael Saylor or something." So you're saying, "No, you you actually go out and find the topic. You might sort of even scope it out, and then you'll approach certain outlets saying, "Hey, I have this idea. Do you want to hire me to do it?" Yeah, it's both. Um, okay. So. For crypto stories, mostly it's a publication that will find me and be like, we need someone that does a Bitcoin thing and we don't know anything. Will you do that for me? And so I'll be like, yeah, I'll do that. And also uh, when I had my Teen Vogue column, for example, it was Teen Vogue who reached out to me and said, do you want to do a fact checking column for us? We heard that you're good at fact checking. So like, um, it's really important, I think, in any industry that you just grow your network and people know what you do. And so people who know what I do will come to me with stories. But most people don't know what I do. And for those people, I have to come to them with stories. And it's kind of a, a back and forth. It's very not profitable to spend time pitching yourself to strangers, as anyone who has tried to raise money knows. Mm -hmm. So that is like a, much harder. Um, but I do both. I get assignments and I do uh, cold pitches. Gotcha. So I'm, I'm going to take us on an aside here and I apologize already <laughs> in advance for it. But I, one of my first guests was a guy named Hugh Naylor. Um, and he was also a Middle East reporter, um, maybe five, 10 years ago. And he was talking about how we, we got in really deep into like how the media landscape has changed over the last 10, 15 years to become sort of more hyper-partisan, hyper-politicized. And that's having an effect on the quality of the media being produced at the journalism level. And it's sort of all trickling down. And I know this is like a massive topic and we could all probably write books on it, but I, I'm just sort of curious uh, what, what your thoughts are as somebody who, you know, was overseas for a while and now you're back in the States reporting in crypto, what, what you think kind of the evolution of, um, the, the media industry has been since you started your career versus kind of where we are now? Oh my gosh, so much has changed. It's like not even the same industry anymore. Um, so when I graduated, I remember in school them telling us your personal brand will be very important. You should have a blog. But no one said that this would be the reason you get hired. Mm -hmm. uh, the other day I applied for a journalism fellowship and it did not ask for my degree and it did not ask for my clips. It asked how many Instagram followers I have. <laughs> and I don't think I'll get that fellowship. <laughs> um, so definitely there's been a pivot um, due to the change in our distribution channels, right? Mm -hmm. Like we used to print and deliver uh, to both shops and to people's homes, the news. And now people go to aggregation sites, whether that's Twitter or Facebook and uh, algorithms surface for them what the platform believes they want to see. Um, so that's just completely changed our business models. Mm -hmm. And uh, when I was starting out, the Middle East beat was seen as like heavily, heavily saturated because um, people, particularly like in American markets, loved hearing news about the craziness going on abroad. And it felt very sen uh, sensational and scandalous. Mm -hmm. Um, I, in particular, was working um, in Israel, covering the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. Sure. And something that uh, people may not know is actually Israel was, at the time that I started there, uh, per capita had more foreign reporters than anywhere else in the world. Huh. So everyone was sending their reporters to bring home scandalous news about things going down in the holy city. Mm -hmm. uh, very exciting. 
And something I've noticed just recently, someone pointed out to me during the Capitol riots, actually, that a lot of people I used to work with in the Middle East are now covering the tech beat because now the tech beat is seen as the, mo the sexiest beat everyone wants to be covering, everyone wants to read about. Hmm. Um, it impacts a lot of uh, factors in daily life. And so, I mean, obviously, <laughs> these two little factoids just show how things have changed so dramatically. The way that I'm evaluated as a professional is by my um, public media persona, which was not the case before, before it was like um, your credentials, quote unquote, and also the topics that people are interested in and the ways that they consume the content are completely different. And all of that will um, change what I am paid to write, right? So like as a reporter, um, I generally do not have the power to just think up an idea, write it up and press publish on a website. I may come up with an idea or I might be given an idea and I have to convince superiors that it's a good thing to put on the website and the people will put it on the website, framing it the way they want with the picture that they want as the headline, with the title they want as the headline, the timing they want. Um, and I could at this stage in my career become an editor who has the power to make those decisions. But because uh, staff has been cut so severely over the past 10 years, I mean, there's some statistics that say something like 40% of jobs are remaining from based on just when I graduated from college and those layoffs continue every year. Those people now do a lot more business operations and actual editing and research and the things that I really love to do. So I choose to be in a position with less power because I enjoy more the job, knowing that means that I'm at the whims of people who frankly are overwhelmed doing the jobs of what four people did uh, 10 years ago. And do you think that's basically due to kind of the changing economics of the publishing industry, how, you know, people don't subscribe to newspapers and they don't have the same ad revenue they used to? Yeah, but I'm really not a believer that ad revenue will save us. Uh, the fact is that the media was never actually serving the reader. We were serving the reader as a product. Mm -hmm. And so we can get that same product by publishing an article. Oh my gosh, it's so embarrassing. It's like one... Some of my biggest articles to date that have had millions of readers, okay, mm -hmm. um, were things about um, Game of Thrones, which frankly was a great take. I said uh, years before it happened that Jon Snow and Daenerys were gonna get together and hook up, and that was <laughs> a big take. Um, and another one was, does this ham sandwich look like a vagina? Huge hit, <laughs> millions of people loved it, big article. And like, the articles that did not get so much attention <laughs> required a lot more work and nuance and thought. And from a publisher's perspective, they are perfectly happy with my ham sandwich vagina article, which mm -hmm. by the way, was an assignment, not a pitch. I did not come up with that genius idea myself. Um, so it's just this constant battle of like wanting to feel good about your work and produce quality, but knowing that you could make something cheap and fast and the publisher will get the same results that they're bringing back to their uh, superiors. You know what I mean? Yeah, that's so interesting. I, I mean, I even see it on Twitter, right? Like, and you probably get the same thing too. It's like, you'll tweet this long, or I'll tweet like a, you know, a thread, 10 tweets about, you know, the state of cryptocurrency and like the legal regulations, and I'll get like 40 likes. And then you tweet something stupid about Bitcoin going to the moon and you get like 10,000 likes. And it's just like, ah. But that may just be the state of, of, consumer, of consumers and media right now. Yeah, well, I mean, I'm a human being too. And sometimes I like a dumb joke and mm -hmm. I totally get it. I think it comes down to like, what am I producing? And so as a freelancer, 
for as long as I economically can, I've been very blessed to try and focus on stories where I'm like, I know this is not gonna be the most hits I can produce. Mm -hmm. I know that for my career, like if I'm wanting to be judged by telling people I can bring 60 million you know, readers to an article, that it's actually not serving my interests. But if I believe that having a devoted but small readership who cares about what I write and benefits from what I write is better for me long-term than having 60 million readers who don't care about me, then I can keep doing the work I'm doing. You know what I mean? So like, yes, I'm aware. And I don't think it makes the reader stupid. Like we are all human beings who have like knee jerk reactions to certain kinds of emotional or goofy content. Um, mm -hmm. But if I try and serve those other impulses, even though I'll get less traction, maybe the traction I get will be worth more in the long run. That's it's it's a bet that I'm making and mm -hmm. hoping works out. Sure. And I suppose that's like a common tension that like writers and sort of content producers more broadly have to struggle with. It's like, well, do I, you know, write the big um, blockbuster motion picture? Do I write the like, artsy art film that brings me joy and value <laughs> and so, um yeah it's a, it's i guess it's a tension that that you have to address sort of day to day as a content creator yeah and i mean i think you as a lawyer probably have to do it too when you evaluate clients right there mm -hmm. are totally clients who could pay you a lot but you would not feel warm and fuzzy about them while there are clients who could pay you less but you think really deserve their shot in court sure yeah, and I suppose that's what pro bono departments are for at big law firms. It's like you always hear that joke that, you know, big law firms have pro bono departments so they can sleep at night. <laughs> and, um, maybe it's sort of the same thing. Well, that, that's interesting. So what uh, we talked about kind of the general state of the media. What do you think is the state of kind of crypto media in particular as somebody who lives and breathes it? I have so many complaints. <laughs> Tell them, <laughs> air your grievances. So it's been maybe four-ish years, mm -hmm. uh, almost, because I started. I really started in this beat in 2017. And I've got to say it has not matured and evolved. Uh, people are still selling the same narratives. I still get the same pitches that I was getting in 2017. And if I turn them down, someone else will run them. And I do turn them down and someone else does run them. And it's wild to me, but understandable that every news cycle there are, uh, fr there's fresh meat that w craves the same stories and companies that are willing to produce that content for them. And it's not super profitable to tell people like, hey, maybe in 50 years, this will be worth something. Any company that's claiming it's going to revolutionize anything is going to need at least a decade just because compliance is really expensive and slow. Um, like that's not a fun story for people to hear. Right. So we still have um, the revolutionizing headlines and we still have um, the, um, is Tether driving the bull market? <laughs> I was headlines. just gonna, yeah, I was just gonna <laughs> say that. It's like Groundhog's Day. Right? Like, so these, these things come around every cycle because that's what people want to read. And we are in the business of providing people with what they want, right? Mm -hmm. um, but I will say that every once in a while during a bull run in particular, there'll be more like, quote unquote, mainstream media outlets that will ask me for like a one-off um, on something related to cryptocurrency just because they were confused and they wanted someone who understands it to cover it. And that's really good. I think it's good um, when publications that aren't crypto media 
take note and want to share this information with their audience because this crypto specific audience, like they just want to hear about their shiny little shit coins. And that's fine and good. I have hobbies too. Um, but that's not really going to evolve as a narrative. It's going to be telling the new, like over and over again, what's happening um, that happened in previous markets as well. Right. So you think it can help drive adoption by getting kind of the broader exposure to people who might not know much about it? I think that, I mean, crypto audiences are really devoted. They're extremely engaged readers, um, but they usually start out interested in all the things and then they find a few things that they're super into and that those things could be DeFi or that thing could be Bitcoin or like whatever it is. And then they will come back to the crypto publication over and over only for coverage of this thing. And that's great. And that's actually desirable. That's good. Um, but the vast majority of readers around them who don't stick it out are people who come in because something is shiny, try, 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 and then um, go out. And they're really looking for more of that surface level content that continues to be the same every cycle, but just insert different company name or byline in it. Sure. This year, the IRS will require you to report your crypto activity when filing your tax returns. Crypto savvy taxpayers are using Node 40 to determine the taxes they owe or losses to claim. Whether you've traded the top five tokens or dove into the new and exciting world of DeFi, Node 40 will provide a bulletproof picture of your current tax liability. Exchanges alone can't provide the reports you need. That's why you need a group of crypto tax geeks like the team at Node 40 in your corner. With Node 40, you won't have to worry about surprises come tax time. Be smart, be prepared, and embrace your crypto lifestyle. My listeners can even take advantage of a bully promo code by signing up today at node40.com slash bully. That's N-O-D-E 40.com slash B-U-L-L-Y. Planning to buy a Tesla with Bitcoin? What if I told you that you could win a Tesla just by trading Bitcoin? Well, now you can with the crypto.com app. Crypto.com is giving away four Teslas, four. To enter the lucky draw, download the Crypto.com app and buy at least 100 bucks worth of Bitcoin before March 8th. If you're new to Crypto.com, you'll also enjoy 0% credit and debit card fees in your first month. Increase your chances of winning by applying for the Crypto.com Visa card, which gives you up to 8% cash back, along with rebates for your Spotify, Netflix, and Amazon Prime subscriptions. More details can be found in the show notes. Download the Crypto.com app and good luck. Join Gemini, the number one cryptocurrency exchange in the world. Gemini is the go-to platform for beginners and sophisticated investors alike looking to build their crypto empire. It's available in more than 50 countries with industry-leading security, insurance, and uptime. You'll get access to the best performing assets of the decade, including Bitcoin and Ethereum, Schedule your reoccurring buys on the Gemini mobile app to steadily build your position and go long and strong on crypto. Open a free account today in under three minutes at Gemini.com bully. If you do, you get 10 bucks in Bitcoin after you trade $100 or more within 30 days. Once again, that's Gemini.com bully. You know, I, I went back through and looked at some of your recent articles and there's a uh, I, I found at least the ones on Coindesk and you had a article on NFTs and kind of the novel way people had been using them recently. Um, what, what's your sort of general take on the NFT space and do you sort of view it kind of the same way as all these other things we've been talking about or do you think it's different? Um, 
NFTs are a little bit different because a lot of what we've been talking about before were financial products, right? Mm -hmm. So DeFi is usually used for loans or interest-bearing deposits. Um, Bitcoin we were talking about before is money, which you can participate in the network and take more responsibility. Uh, sorry, I apologize in advance to anyone who really likes NFTs and will be offended by this. Um, but NFTs are, in my opinion, a blockchain-shaped receipt that you can use to brag to your fellow nerds about direct interaction with an artist or an artist fan group. And that's great. And lots of people want to do it. And that's cool for them. Um, I mean, there are girls on OnlyFans and other kinds of sites like that that sell bathwater mm -hmm. or socks. And there's no reason why a blockchain-shaped receipt from the artist or, or, or fan community that you are passionate about should be seen as any less viable. There are NFTs that do all kinds of complicated and awesome things, particularly for gamers. Like if you were to have an NFT that every time you go into a battle will remember all the different things, so your character could develop scars or skills, and that's cool. I'm not a gamer, so personally, I don't use that form of NFT, but I do think that there's cool potential for gamers there. Uh, for me, I've sold some NFTs, uh, particularly for poems, Mm -hmm. and one that was a, a selfie and there are some women that are doing like uh like hot picture nfts mm -hmm. and like cool for them it's basically a kind of only fans and for the for the nerds who want to brag about it i'm happy for them too that they found a product that really meshes their passions together <laughs> yeah naked women and blockchains I mean, I haven't seen so many that are naked naked but yeah pretty much Fair i enough. mean who doesn't like uh <laughs> attention from hot girls and so that's a thing that some sure. guys uh use their nft for and good for them yeah the the gaming part is really interesting i actually had a coin artist on a, a few weeks ago and they're launching um cyber uh, it's like a cyberpunk rpg that's blockchain based and the nfts play a part in it it's like the nft is connected to particular gear so you can get like a helmet that is represented by an NFT. And then you can like, there's a secondary market for them and they get upgraded as you get experience. So I totally agree that the kind of gaming side is really rich with prospects there on the NFT side. Yeah, it kind of takes the action figure collectible world and digitizes it. Because mm -hmm. I mean, we have that concept from before, right? You could have a really cool GI Joe that has like a jacket that other GI Joes don't have. We understand this. And so now this digitizes it, make it a lot easier for people to trade them and to update them. Awesome. Yeah, no, I'll be interested to see that space, but <laughs> I love the idea of a blockchain shaped receipt. That's good. I might steal that. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I know another thing you've done recently is you launched a Substack, and I, I thought you could tell us about that, what you're doing over there and um, uh, allow people to hear kind of from in your words, what, uh, what you're trying to achieve with it. Yeah. So when I was in journalism school, the big thing was blogging and everyone was supposed to launch a blog and it was supposed to revolutionize the industry. And sure, there are tons of blogs that actually became small outlets, but the majority of them fizzled out and the industry just became smaller and more competitive. It didn't exactly change too dramatically. It was social media that uh, changed the industry more dramatically than the concept of blogging. Um, and I see newsletters as kind of like the next phase of that. And in, in that meaning, I do not expect my Substack to pay my bills, but it is a way that I can earn income, then directly engage with my audience and write without an editor. 
I mean, sometimes I do have editors that contribute, so I don't mean write things that are completely raw, but by that I mean I don't have to convince the, the field of people above me uh, when to publish, how to publish, and what the headline would be. I have complete control over the newsletter in a way that I don't have over the things I sell to other employers. Uh, so that's been really fun because basically anyone who's a paying subscriber, I take their questions and I try to answer them. And so if someone were to assign me an article for an outlet, I might charge, you know, $400. Mm-hmm. Somebody pays $30 to join my Substack, they can basically assign me an article <laughs> and I will dedicate the same amount of effort to answering this question and to um, really giving an explanation and researching it. It's like the cheapest way ever uh, for anyone to get information that they don't see elsewhere. And it's been really, really, really fun to have readers just like directly writing me questions and um, writing me feedback on like what they think or what they want to see more of. And so basically in the Substack, I'm writing about anything that these readers want and I have to learn what it is that they're interested in, like data centers or like all kinds of things. And then I have to give them the content that they ask for. Awesome. And do you share then, is it like, okay, you'll take some questions and then um, if, you know, you write an article on something, it'll kind of go out as a publication on the newsletter or is it, you'll just like write that particular person back? Oh no, it's, it's uh, for the newsletter. So if it's a regular subscriber, then it's for subscribers only. Uh, Mm -hmm. So the people who pay uh, $30 for the year. Um, but someone can sponsor a post for the public, which is uh, slightly more expensive. And it means that we sign a contract so that we're very clear on what it is that they're expecting. Um, this is not me endorsing whatever project they want me to write about. This is not me you know, um, saying whatever it is they want me to say. Um, but I will take that question very seriously and make it publicly searchable. Mm-hmm. And so a few uh, readers have done that. And that's also been very fruitful. Cool. And is it mainly crypto focused or is it just everything? So a lot of my readers, since I've been working on that for the past four years, are crypto people. And so a lot of the questions they ask are crypto-y questions, but not always. Um, I've had people just generally ask about like how the media works or about um, thirst traps or like like whatever it is. The data centers one, oh my God, this uh, reader wanted me to explain how data centers factor into the modern publishing landscape. And I was like, oh goodness. Yeah. <laughs> that had nothing to do with crypto at all and i wrote it up and it was i learned a lot from it interesting so yeah what do you mind sharing what sort of your thesis was um it'd be hard to say short but okay. the, the the short answer is just basically our distribution model is completely changed oh gotcha right so like we're not really sending things to a printer anymore so we do for some things but for the most part we're relying on service providers and the quality of service that we can provide, you know, whether that website is slow or fast to load, for example, depends on which data centers we're using. Hmm. And our access to data centers, say someone could be writing a newspaper now from Yemen and be publishing it for an audience in Silicon Valley. It would cost them a lot compared to what they would be earning in Yemen, but there's a much more lucrative audience in Silicon Valley than what he could access locally. Hmm. And that would just never be feasible before. Like you by the time you shipped all the papers from Yemen to Silicon Valley, it would be Mm. old news anyway. Um, So sure, it's expensive and difficult and there are all these challenges, but we've just entirely changed the landscape of who we can sell to and what is required for us to do it. Yeah, that's interesting. I've certainly never thought about those two topics, kind of how they interact with each other. So yeah, sounds interesting. Um, 
one one question too I had for you speaking of sort of like the servers and you know I guess this impl implicates tech companies as well as like the recent move to censor the recent move by big tech to censor like Republicans Trump being deplatformed and things and I'm just curious as a journalist what you think about that kind of recent development if it's you know if it seems sort of consistent with what you'd expect or if if you were surprised at that or if you think it's overblown or if it's worrisome I'm just kind of curious to get your take on that yeah I think that we've seen what it takes for a white rich man to be treated like any other sex worker it takes him <laughs> being about to leave office so unable to hurt them and trying to overthrow the government that's literally what it takes for him to be treated the same as somebody who posts a butt pic um, like, so the, the deep platforming that a lot of these groups have been facing are, happen every single day and have been for the past decade to a variety of groups. It's really not a good idea to, if you're a Palestinian in Israel, post about how you want to stab an Israeli. You will probably find yourself in trouble. Mm -hmm. um, likewise, if you post um, sexually explicit content on Instagram, you will lose access to that platform. And sometimes a sex worker who loses access to one platform will find herself on a blacklist. Same thing with anyone who's accused of terrorism, for example. And then they will not get just banned from that one platform, but across many platforms. I've interviewed people who lost access to 10 different platforms because one got triggered and it could have been for something super harm harmless, um, really uh, not uh, violent at all. Mm -hmm. um, that's, that's a thing that happens. And so am I surprised that it happened in this case? Not particularly. And I don't really think that the liberals who are doing it deserve any brownie points for doing it right as Trump leaves office either. Mm. Like, yes, what we see is, is that deplatforming people who disrupt or threaten the status quo of a network is commonplace. And it usually happens when they can't uh, fight back and now Trump, although he's very rich and has a, a team of lawyers who can help him, uh, will no longer have the same power that he had a year ago to fight back. So now is the time that technology companies are willing to do it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that makes sense. And I, I, I think I agree with you. And, you know, you sort of hear like the sky is falling narrative from the right. And I, I certainly don't agree with that. I mean, you're right. He basically like incited a revolution <laughs> and it failed, but it, it's still like... You know, it's about as serious of a accusation as you can think of. Um, and people are deplatformed for a heck of a lot less um, all the time. I'm not trying to discredit here the concerns about the legitimacy of the election. Um, mm -hmm. I think that there's a lot of people who have legitimate concerns about that. But I can tell you that there were people who had those exact same concerns every time they lost. Mm -hmm. um, that's, it's a very common thing to question the legitimacy of our democracy and those groups of people were maybe treated differently um, or, or maybe they had different kinds of success. Uh, so I'm not saying that like, oh, well, like the, the crazy conservatives deserve to be deplatformed, not at all. What I'm saying is that like they, the technology companies want to maintain a kind of status quo that is good for their bottom line. And anyone from any political party or any affiliation that questions that bottom line is going to find themselves um, very quickly isolated in a world where our online identities are how we interact with most people. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, that's, I, I suppose we'll see how it goes, but I, I, I think that's a good take. What I, I, I wanted to ask before we run out of time here, if there's anything else, other projects that, that you're working on that you want my listeners to know about. Yeah, um, so I'm planning a crypto themed poetry reading uh, for around Valentine's Day uh, for love poems at the Bitcoin Citadel in February. So that's gonna be fun. And I'm also planning a few um, virtual meetups basically this upcoming year that I'm calling the Digital Salon Initiative. And it's basically being able to contextualize Bitcoin and other kinds of cryptocurrency tools in the workflow that I as a freelance journalist and other kinds of writers experience. It's really hard to find places where you can actually ask questions about Bitcoin and not have someone try and sell it to you. Mm -hmm. And I personally use Bitcoin as part of my work and I think it's very useful and I love using it. But I talk about it the same way that I would want to talk about PayPal or Venmo. I don't think that you know someone who asks me a simple question needs to then get a whole diatribe on the monetary history of the world. <laughs> so I wanted to create a space for people who have this common interest, which is um, managing their own finances, can do so without it having to be tied to either a developer community, which is completely legitimate and awesome. It's just not my skill set, um, or a uh, soliciting, basically sure. not tied to soliciting. People who are interested in cryptocurrency um, but want to talk about it in the, the framework of other tools that they also use uh, for creative work. So that's a digital salon. It's uh, digitalsaloninitiative.org. And I'm really excited to, I guess, plan these and hopefully answer some questions for people who are crypto curious but wouldn't ever find themselves at a Bitcoin meetup. Cool. And so where can people find out more information on these? On these things? Yeah. Um, I will hopefully, you, they should follow me on Twitter. Okay. Um, so that's L-A underscore underscore C-U-E-N. And uh, for the Digital Salon Initiative, that's um, digitalsaloninitiative.org. Awesome. And where's, where's the Bitcoin Citadel? I feel like I should know this. Um, it's a VR chat space. I should... Ah probably figure out a like something to tweet so that people can click on the links there i just kind of had this idea not so long ago and i'm still figuring that part out but if they follow me on twitter i will tweet a link with easy instructions i'm still figuring out how to use vr it's kind of like bitcoin it's, it's a little bit early yeah yeah no it's a it's a brave new world for sure um awesome well hey i really appreciate your time and you coming on to talk everything crypto and media with me. It's been really interesting. And um, yeah, thanks. Thanks for coming on. Thank you. And yeah, go follow Lee at LA underscore underscore C-U-E-N. Take care, guys. Cheers. Hey, everyone. Thanks for listening. New episodes go live every Wednesday at 7 a.m. Eastern. Links to our Apple and Spotify channels are in the show notes. You can also follow me on Twitter at BullyESQ to continue the conversation. See you next week.